Meanwhile, a proposed increase on alcohol taxes is moving forward. House Bill 230 cleared its first House committee this morning. It would add a 25-cent tax for every pint of beer, glass of wine, and shot of liquor. So that's about an extra $4 for your average bottle of tequila. The bill's sponsors say it's a small price for a lot of good. I'm Damian Willis. And this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. This week, we're talking to Ted Alcorn, a New Mexico native and a freelance journalist who has written for the New York Times, teaches at Columbia University and NYU, and previously worked for the mayor's office in New York City. Ted recently wrote a long series for New Mexico In Depth called Blind Drunk. It detailed how alcohol is killing New Mexicans at a higher rate than anywhere else in the country, at a rate that's about three times higher than the national rate, actually. Yet the state has largely neglected the growing crisis, That series recently won an award for excellence in reporting from the Association of Healthcare Journalists. We'll link to that series in the show notes. House Bill 230 is a proposed tax increase on alcohol. The bill cleared its first committee on Friday, February 10th. If passed, it would add a 25 cent tax to every pint of beer, glass of wine, or shot of liquor. The bill's sponsors, said increasing the state's alcohol tax is long overdue. Here's Representative Joanne Ferrari, a Las Cruces Democrat, who is one of the bill's sponsors. We haven't raised the alcohol excise tax since 1993. That's 30 years that we have um, seen inflation uh, strip away the effects of having um, an alcohol tax to help reduce consumption. The sponsors said the proposal could decrease total alcohol consumption in New Mexico by 7%. More than 2,700 New Mexicans died from alcohol last year. More than six people a day, a nearly 50% increase from 2020. That doesn't include DWI cases and other health impacts. Despite the lower consumption, the proposed alcohol tax would still generate more than $155 million a year in revenue, according to projections, which could be funneled into prevention and treatment programs long term. But we may not see it pass. On Monday, February 20th, the bill was tabled by the House Taxation and Revenue Committee, which voted unanimously to shelve it. This may be a postmortem on the bill unless something changes. There's a chance it could be folded into an omnibus tax bill, according to the bill's proponents. We'll talk to Ted about that. He's been following the issue closely. This week, I'm happy to have Ted joining us. Ted, thanks for making time to join us today. It's my pleasure. First, talk a little bit about HB 230. What would it do? HB 230 is a bill introduced by Representative Dran Ferrari, uh, and there's a companion bill in the Senate, which I believe is Senate Bill 259, um, sponsored by Senator Antoinette Cedillo Lopez. And these 
bills uh, are, I would say, the leading proposal this year, or maybe we should say the most ambitious proposal this year for addressing the state's crisis of alcohol-related deaths. And as we've talked about before, I've been reporting on alcohol's impact on New Mexico for more than a year now, um, and it's a staggering toll. Alcohol kills more New Mexicans than fentanyl, heroin, and methamphetamines combined by a factor of two. The alcohol-related death rate in the state has tripled the nation's, and we are just head and shoulders above any other state. And the history of policymaking on this issue in the state is pretty dismal. Lawmakers, and I would say the general public, have kind of turned their back on it, even as the problem has gotten worse and worse and worse. And, and deaths crested last year, in the last year of data anyway, at over 2,200 people killed by alcohol, which is the most on record um, in the state. So all of that's kind of brought a lot of attention to this issue. And I think various lawmakers are wondering, if there's something they can do about it. And these bills are, as I said, the most ambitious because they intend to raise alcohol taxes. Right now, on any alcohol product sold in the state, the state levies a small tax based on the volume of alcohol that's sold. And it varies a little bit between beer and wine and spirits. And of course, you're buying these things in different volumes. But if you make it all into standard drinks, what you'd order to bar basically, the state taxes beer about four cents a drink, wine about the same amount, and any liquor at about seven cents a drink. And there's some nuances there, but you get the idea. Sure. Um, and these bills would raise that tax and make it even for all beer, wine, and spirits and would raise them to 25 cents a drink. So on the one hand, it's a big relative increase on the taxes that are levied right now. Uh, you know, it's in some cases more than double, more than triple, more than quadruple. But on the other hand, you're still talking about a pretty small tax relative to the price that you're already paying for alcohol, particularly, let's say, alcohol you're buying at a bar, margarita you're buying at a restaurant. An extra quarter is probably less than you've seen those prices rise in the last year just due to inflation. So, the bill's purpose, I guess I would say, at least as the sponsors would tell it and as the scientists would say, is is twofold. It's one, to pass that price, that tax increase on to consumers and essentially to say, if you're going to drink alcohol, you're going to pay a slightly higher price. And the economics, if you take an even a simple economics class, you probably get the idea of supply and demand. And when prices go up, demand does go down for pretty much any good. And that's true for alcohol as it is for cigarettes. And out, these taxes are meant to, by incrementally increasing the price of alcohol, incrementally reduce drinking, particularly by New Mexicans who are drinking way, way too much. But of course, those little quarters add up in a state that drinks <laughs> something like a billion dollars worth of alcohol a year. Wow. Um, this, this, These taxes are estimated, at least by the sponsors and the, some economists that have, have done some research with them, to raise about $150 million per year. And their uh, legislation, at least the bills that have been introduced, would direct that $155 million essentially to a new, what they call alcohol harms alleviation fund. 
the AHA fund. And um, the details about that are not super, super clear, but the overall purpose of it is, as it says in its name, to, to fund prevention and treatment services specifically to start taming the state's really long-term problems with alcohol. Yeah, so that's that's why this bill has gotten a lot of attention, um, although there are some other proposals that are being discussed uh, that would take different steps and, frankly, may have a better chance of passage. Through your reporting, you've really dived into some of the science behind alcohol abuse. Why do you think this might be an effective way to curb drinking in the state? I think societally, we tend to think about alcohol problems through a kind of a stigmatizing lens. We tend to think that the people that struggle with alcohol uh, have personal are, are dealing with personal demons or have personal issues. We don't tend to think of it as something that is a population level phenomenon. And that I think is why sometimes people think this is kind of an intractable intractable problem. You know, they think about a family member who drinks too much and they say, well, nothing's going to stop that person from drinking. But they, what, what this sort of fails to recognize is that Populationally, our state does have much more have much more alcohol problems and many more alcohol related harms than other places. And it can't just be because we got a different set of values or morality or, you know, moral weakness in other places. We have an environment where it is easier to drink heavily and where the harms of drinking heavily are really inflicted on our population. And so um, the power of an alcohol tax, nobody likes the word tax, right? Not, Not anybody, I don't think, but is that it applies very evenly across all consumption related alcohol. And so some people complain about a tax and it's come up in the legislative hearings. They said a tax is like punishing all the students in a classroom for the misbehavior of a few. That was that was verbatim from some of the opponents of this proposal. But that's also the beauty of a tax, I think, at least as according to the scientists, because it does apply to all kinds of alcohol equally, and it, it reduces the demand, again, incrementally for all those types of alcohol. And that is essentially a way of reshaping the drinking environment that we all grow up in, that we all live in, to not only to help people who are already drinking excessively and who have a severe dependence to alcohol, but also to help prevent young people from starting down that road um, and from developing alcohol use disorders that are going to be really hard for them to unwind later. So, you know, that's why uh, the scientists pretty much universally say that nothing will be a silver bullet for addressing New Mexico's alcohol crisis, but there's really no way of truly reducing our alcohol-related death rate without these kinds of big-picture measures that would really change drinking behavior overall. Critics say that it targets poor people, and you kind of touched on that, but you recently published a story for New Mexico In-Depth diving into whether or not that's true. Can you summarize that? Yeah. This has been on my mind since last fall because um, obviously with the legislature in in Democratic hands, a Democratic governor, the um, the Republicans are uh, have generally been pretty opposed to this measure. But there is a Democratic majority to pass it if they wanted to, which means that um, they really need to keep their caucus together. And it was striking last fall that for me anyway, to hear some lawmakers expressing some wariness about an alcohol tax 
And they voiced it at that time in terms of its impact on poor people. I think Representative Michaela Lara Cadena, who's a, a progressive from, from Los, the County, Las Cruces right? area, yeah, from Las Cruces, um, you know, research director for a progressive um, organization, she called them attacks on poor people and said she trusts New Mexicans to make their own decisions about their bodies, their lives, their futures, whether that's abortion access or death with dignity or the substances they consume. It's kind of a bit of a libertarian refrain in there too, but I was you know, struck to hear that this bill was being criticized for harming poor people. Similarly, Representative Susan Herrera from uh, the other end of the state up north, she kind of made a, a laugh line when she said, you know, she calls this sort of tax, not a sin tax, but a poor man's tax, she said, not because poor people sin more than rich people, but because they pay more for their sins. <laughs> and, you know, running through that is, I think, definitely some deep wisdom and recognition that we've got uh, an economic tax policy in the state that has been, you know, I think the, the economists would say has been stacked against the poorest New Mexicans. The, the tax code historically has been very regressive, meaning that poor people pay a higher share of their income and in taxes, particularly because the state has really re relied on consumption taxes and that the, the income tax has not been progressive enough to make up for that. That's changed a little bit in recent years. There've been some pretty big changes that have made the tax code as a whole more progressive. But, um, you know, there's I think some organizations and voices on the left definitely want to fight for a fairer economic game board, I guess. The thing about alcohol taxes is that like all consumption taxes, they're technically regressive. That's what the state, former state tax policy director Kelly O'Donnell told me when she explained that any consumption tax that's widely taken on the population's income is going to appear larger to lower income people because you know, they're going to pay a higher share of their income into that tax. But that label of regressive is a pretty simplistic one for assessing whether a tax is good or bad for people who are at the lower end of the income spectrum, according to some of the health experts out there. Um, and specifically when it comes to, let's say, alcohol or tobacco taxes, which have been really widely used around the world to address the harms of smoking, the research shows that the taxes have really quite progressive effects, meaning that they have much bigger benefits for poor people for two reasons. One, in, at least in the case of alcohol, lower income people actually drink less than higher income people. It's very clear in the surveys that have been done in the state and elsewhere that the wealthiest New Mexicans are twice as likely to report having had a drink in the last month as the poorest New Mexicans. So oh. if you don't drink, you know, you don't pay any alcohol taxes. And that means wealthy New Mexicans are, are twice as likely to pay anything into this fund as are the poorest New Mexicans. But the other reason, and it might even be more important, is that the the way that we respond to a tax is influenced by how much money we have, you know, and a flat or a, uh, yeah, a flat tax on a drink that's 25 cents is going to be more onerous on someone who has less income and it's going to influence their behavior more as a result. And this has been shown in the tobacco research really clearly because tobacco taxes have a bigger behavioral change on poorer people than on wealthier people. And therefore those folks end up actually saving money in medical expenses and lost productivity that they would have missed in uh, from uh, being out sick from work. Um, so the economic 
benefits actually accrue most and the health benefits to people who are poorest. And that's why, you know, the folks who've studied these taxes and fiscal policy for health say these are wildly progressive policies, even if the taxes themselves are technically regressive. Stepping away a little bit from the tax issue, how did you first become, looking at the the broader picture, how did you first become aware of this issue and what drew you to the project as a whole? Well, this investigation really started with uh, out of the blue. I'd been looking at the relationship between COVID and the COVID pandemic and um, whether or not its impact in New Mexico had been influenced by alcohol-related disease in the state. As one does. (laughs) As one does. Well, on the behest of my editor, I was looking into COVID and its relationship with alcohol. And uh, I came across a data point that shouldn't have surprised me, but it did. It was that alcohol kills New Mexicans at a faster clip than anywhere else in the country. And the numbers were so far from other states, I kind of did a double take. And I'm used to New Mexico is the state that I love and that I also know is often at the bottom of a lot of lists when it comes to things like child well-being and, you know, some of the measures of our health and, and happiness, honestly. And so I nonetheless was shocked that our rates of alcohol related disease were so high. And it kind of sent me down a rabbit hole of, of saying, is this data accurate? What is it failing to capture? What is it capturing? And why is it the case? And there is no single really satisfying answer. Like many complicated things, I think there's many different reasons that sort of combine for us to have such a high rate of alcohol related harms. But it really opened my eyes to how widespread this issue is. And um, like anything, when you're a reporter and you start asking people about it and going to places that you hadn't been before, us particularly around a topic like this that people tend to not bring up, don't talk about. Um, but when you prompt it, you start to realize, wow, everybody's got a story about somebody who's been harmed by alcohol or their own struggles with alcohol. And the more I looked, the more I realized it's all around us. If you drive around Albuquerque, you start to notice the billboards for alcohol and spirits. If you go into grocery stores and you, you see at the front of the line by the checkout, there's liquor that's being offered to you as a last minute um, temptation. Uh, That's not not typical. That's not, that's not the way it is in all places in this country. And you start to put together the dots and you say, wow, this is not a simple thing, but our culture really does venerate drinking in a way that is clearly hurting us terribly. And I think some other folks have opened their eyes to that. And uh, I know Senator Antoinette Cedillo Lopez, although these alcohol tax bills have, uh, or, you know, the stalled in the House committee earlier, and they may sputter out. She said it would be a crime if we didn't address this in some way this session. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm a journalist, I'm not an advocate, and I don't pretend to offer people their own choices about what to, what to do. But if you think that having 2000 of your fellow residents die each year is a problem, I I think it really is imperative that lawmakers do something. And with that in mind, I hate to ask a journalist to prognosticate uh, as one myself, but I'm really curious why so many lawmakers, both Democrats and Republicans seem to doubt the scientific studies that show raising alcohol taxes does reduce consumption. In your reporting, have you learned anything about that? 
or in the hearings you've tuned in for? Well, I I do um, think that the science, and we're talking about when I say the science, when we look at the experience of other states that have employed alcohol taxes, where you've been able to observe them change their alcohol taxes and then look at the health benefits and reductions in injury and so forth that follow. You know, we have a natural laboratory around this country in that sense that we can we can learn from places like Alaska that have changed their taxes and seen some benefits. But the overwhelming trend in alcohol taxes has been the, the reverse. We're not alone in allowing our alcohol taxes to shrink each year as inf- inflation erodes them. Um, yes, alcohol taxes in New Mexico are the lowest they've been in 30 years. But that's true in a lot of states because um, we've, as a country, I think, have really let this kind of policy be dismembered. And we've seen alcohol-related deaths around the countries, you know, increase consistently and incredibly as uh, at the same time. Alcohol killed over 140,000 Americans last year. But, you know, it's one thing to look at sort of research studies and make these inferences and another to have to grapple with the way the policy would affect you in the day to day. And this policy is, in a sort of sense, pretty incremental. It would change prices really at the margins and in ways influencing behavior that are kind of invisible to any individual. And I think that makes it a little bit hard for anybody to sort of gauge exactly what their behavior or other people's behavior would be towards it. And it's one thing to be told, you know, some pointy headed economist says this is a good policy. It's another to believe that what it could actually help turn this seemingly inexorable march uh, up in the mortality figures around the state. So I don't, I, I think people are right to be skeptical that lawmakers can make a difference, but I think, you know, some people, it's not that they doubt the science. They do wonder if a policy that's pursued by a kind of uh, group of well-meaning public health people will really benefit the people who are most affected by this issue in the state. And I take those criticisms, I think, really seriously, because, um, you know, I think it's really important to listen to the group of people who are most affected by alcohol, both people who are in recovery themselves or members of a population in groups that have been disproportionately afflicted with alcohol related disease. And for example, the native people in New Mexico, although they represent just a small share of the total alcohol related disease in the state, and it's it's a problem that's widely shared across the Anglo and Hispanic populations too, they do have much higher rates of alcohol related mortality. And, you know, I've heard some concerns by some native voices about whether an alcohol tax would truly benefit native people in the House Tax Committee representative and chairperson Derek Lente. He said he was thinking about, you know, the the folks on the reservation and or Navajo Nation who uh, don't have access to alcohol on the reservation anyway. And uh, whether increases in prices would push drinkers there to, you know, seek out either illegal or unsafe sources of alcohol. The science doesn't suggest that that is the main reaction that people have to alcohol tax policy. But, you know, that's what he's thinking about. And so, you know, I think that if the lawmakers want to pass a bill like this, they really do need to be thinking about talking to and listening to the most affected people, making sure that if they're, you know, if, if, if this bill were to pass, it would, I think, have to have the alliances and sponsorship of those really important groups. 
with HB 230 specifically, we should note we're recording this on Thursday, February 23rd. Um, On Monday, a few days ago, it got tabled in the tax and rev committee and seems like it might be dead. We don't know yet. With HB 230, what do you think the prognosis is? Could it possibly be revived? Well, the uh, this isn't the first year advocates have pushed an alcohol tax increase. They did in 2017. And at that time, after a year-long campaign, they couldn't even make it through their first committee. So it was actually quite a different clash this year when uh, opponents and proponents of the bill came uh, first in the House Health Committee, debated the issue, and it passed 6-4. Then it arrived in the House Tax Committee, and I'd say both sides seemed to have been even more reinforced. There was abundant comments and support and in opposition um, by a wide variety of groups and and as is customary in the last couple of sessions anyway in that committee they did ultimately table the bill and they table any bill that would have an impact a fiscal impact so that they can consider them all together and produce a more sensible sort of omnibus tax uh, bill towards the end of the session but as you said the comments um, from some of the members and the chairperson were i think widely interpreted by keen political observers to indicate that there is not very strong support or not at least strong enough support to pass this bill as it looks right now into the into the package. And some lawmakers like Representative Chris Chandler said she supported an ax, uh, alcohol tax increase in theory, but felt like this one was too big a step. Representative Lente said he was open to talking with the sponsors, including after the session in the interim next year. Um, and I think other lawmakers have sort of, you know, expressed a similar middle ground. The opponents of the legislation, notably the local brewers and wineries, regional distributors of alcohol, and then the national or global manufacturers, particularly Anheuser-Busch, um, many of their members in opposing this measure pointed lawmakers to a couple of other bills that have been introduced this year. And of those, the one that they seem to focus the most on was one introduced by Senator Jerry Ortiz Pino, which would not raise alcohol taxes, but would simply use the existing alcohol tax revenue and dedicate it more completely to alcohol treatment and prevention. And there's a little bit of backstory there, which I'll just condense by saying that right now, the alcohol taxes raise about $50 million in revenue, and half of that goes to the general fund for general spending. And it's long been that way. And the opponents of tax increases say, why would you raise the taxes when you already don't use the taxes we collect? So I think Senator Ortiz Pino has said this should be a good first step just to fully dedicate those resources to treatment. And then you could come back and look at whether the tax rates were appropriate or not. And so certainly it wouldn't have any impact on the alcohol industry one way or the other. It's just a change in how the state spends the money that they already um, put into its coffers. But that seems to be the bill right now, at least that would have more universal support. Uh, If you're just joining us, we're talking to reporter Ted Alcorn. As you noted, when we were talking Last week, Ted, several Las Cruces area legislators played key roles in its creation. 
and its ultimate demise, if that's where this ends up going. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's uh, well, there's uh, the beautiful thing about the law uh, making process in New Mexico is it does bring people from all across the state. Probably one of the leading proponents of uh, doing something to address alcohol crisis is Representative Joan Ferrari. She was a sponsor of the bill back in 2017 that uh, was pursued by advocates and then kind of flopped immediately. And this year, she's been at the front and center of efforts again with this bill that um, is slightly less ambitious than the proposal in 2017. That one would have raised all alcohol taxes by 25 cents. This one simply raises all the taxes to 25 cents. So it's, you know, it's kind of just leveling them up to that. So she's played a key role and um, and an, an ambitious one. Yeah. And representative Michaela uh, Lara Cadena had definitely expressed some skepticism about the bill earlier in the fall. She, uh, at least in my recollection, didn't speak up in the tax committee hearing this week. So I'm not certain whether her views about it have evolved one way or the other. Can you talk about the alcohol lobby, the culture of alcohol in Santa Fe surrounding the legislature and the impact that may or may not play in lawmakers votes? Well, I think that there's um, it's no secret there's been a lot of consternation over the last year about the culture in the roundhouse itself, um, particularly with regards to alcohol. Um, we had one lawmaker resign after an arrest for a DUI, a senator who was summarily uh, removed from his committee assignment due to uh, alleged misbehavior, sexual impropriety that involved alcohol. There's legislation that's been introduced to explicitly ban legislators from drinking on the job. Um, so I think it's, it's you know, no secret that uh, lawmakers in Santa Fe who go up for the session on a essentially a voluntary basis work long hours for an intense period of time and are in a place where they're kind of dependent on lobbyists to feed and uh, wine and dine them. Um, and that like all New Mexicans, there's a spectrum of people in our representatives who have responded to alcohol differently. And there are people with alcohol problems that serve in lawmaking roles. And so I, I guess I would say, you know, many lawmakers that I ask about this say that the culture up there doesn't influence their decision making on the laws themselves. But it's undeniable that they're very cozy and dependent on businesses that profit from selling alcohol. And you could see that in the hearing on Monday in the tax committee where, you know, every single member of the committee who has served for at least one session is a recipient of money from the alcohol industry into the thousands of dollars of political contributions, particularly from Anheuser-Busch and Southern Glazer Wine and Spirits, the distributorship. And you could see it in the audience where some of the biggest names in lobbying in Santa Fe were there representing various uh, alcohol interests um, or, you know, business interests that still benefit from alcohol sales. So, those are intangible influences on the lawmaking process, but they're very real. And the resources that stack up on each side of this issue are 
not proportional to one another. And meanwhile, there are other pro-alcohol bills that have been proposed that are still alive. I'm not sure if that's exactly the right way to characterize them, but they're designed to boost business for New Mexico microbreweries and wineries and those types of things. Can you tell us about those? Well, um, you know, remarkably, the alcohol statutes in New Mexico are um, have not been opened up and touched in a long time. The, the archaic language and units that they use kind of is indicative of this. The biggest recent changes were in 2021 when, uh, you know, mid-pandemic, uh, under pressure to help the hospitality industry, lawmakers saw an opening and essentially expanded the opportunities for businesses to sell alcohol. The bills did a lot of different things, which is makes them a little bit hard to characterize. But the most important elements, I would say, were the, the bill that was passed in 21 created an easier way for restaurants to sell liquor. In addition to wine and spirits, they allowed for the home delivery of alcohol, of of uh, spirits, and in essence, they expanded the places that people could buy alcohol and, uh, you know, the opportunities to do so. There was also a push that succeeded to make liquor license, licenses, which used to be a hot commodity in New Mexico, very, very, very affordable for well, almost yeah. anybody. They did create a new type of alcohol sales license for restaurants and people who have an existing license to sell alcohol in the state um, treat those as valuable assets because they're limited in number and indeed have been valued in the resale market, depending on the type of license um, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they, uh, including small businesses, but also mega chains, uh, gas stations, that sort of thing. And they are very, very wary of anything that would change the value of those licenses, because in some cases it can represent a bigger investment for them than their entire business. Um, and so, yeah, after the, in, the creation of these new restaurant licenses for selling alcohol, there was and has continued to be a lot of concern that it would erode the value of the licenses of existing alcohol makers, uh, alcohol sellers. I've looked closely at that data and there is a, de a decline in and I would say a, a slight decline in the value of certain types of licenses. It's a little bit hard to say because these sales don't occur terribly often and you're kind of interpreting. They are it's certainly not taken the air out of those licenses completely, but it's early days and so I, I haven't fully sort of vetted the impacts of that. It's also definitely increased the number of places that are selling spirits. Um, there's there's dozens of new license holders under the new regime. So I think from a public health point of view, which isn't the only kind of point of view to adopt, right? But it certainly has increased access to alcohol in a state that scientists would say has already too easy access to alcohol. And, and in that light, it is somewhat surprising that a group of representatives quite across the political spectrum, but including Senator Mo Maestas, who led that effort, have brought a bill this year that would extend alcohol shipping to local breweries. And so would, again, ratchet down the restrictions on alcohol sales um, and, you know, make it further easier to fill your fridge with beer without even leaving your house. Right, right. What are your thoughts about the prospects of this being folded into an omnibus tax bill? Well, political observers sharper than I would probably not bet 
uh, the farm <laughs> on it. <laughs> um, I'm just making that guess based on the discussion in this one tax committee where there was, you know, multiple members of the Democratic Party expressing pretty severe reservations about the bill that they were discussing. Although, again, none outright opposed it in many proposed ways that it could potentially be adjusted or negotiated. And because a lot of the way that these tax bills gets created is in behind, you know, behind closed doors uh, deal making, I guess it's anybody's guess whether something could end up or emerge in there that would um, address alcohol in this way. It'll be interesting to see how this other bill um, that would just simply change the destination of alcohol tax revenues does. In some ways, maybe it undercuts momentum for an alcohol tax increase, but it would definitely increase resources for alcohol treatment and prevention, um, which you know is is half of what an alcohol tax increase would would achieve, and. In this way, you know, still a couple of weeks left in the session, it seems like anything's possible. But the alcohol problems that the states struggled with have been going on for decades. They're not going to go away on their own, and they're most likely only going to get worse. So lawmakers will, you know, get to continue to observe that trend, and maybe it'll, you know, continue to motivate them to come back and think about this issue in coming years. Or uh, reach a tipping point at some point down the road. Absolutely. One in 11 deaths in New Mexico were due to alcohol-related causes, according to the New Mexico Department of Health. Outside of the legislature, should that prove impossible, how do we curb that? Are other solutions available? And, you know, that sounds like a staggering number. But if you look at young people, it's one in three of the deaths of people between the ages of 20 to 34 are alcohol related. Which so, is uh, a far more staggering number. Yeah. I mean, I think the it's a complex problem and it's of course rooted in a lot of the challenges that New Mexicans are very familiar with being a rural state with deep poverty, with historical trauma and violence from our frontier days and the huge disparities that still shape the lives uh, of many New Mexicans, including uh, Native people who are here long before Anglos. But uh, experts also say that there's a lot of different ways to tackle the issue. Um, at New Mexico In Depth, part of the reporting that we did was simply to go and survey all of them and former alcohol experts who work in the Department of Health and put all those recommendations together. And there's more than a dozen things that they ended up saying could be a part of a package of things that would address alcohol. Interestingly, the governor and her Department of Health have proposed the creation of an Office of Alcohol Prevention, which has never existed before in the state, but they're asking the legislature for $5 million to set it up. And that would greatly expand the number of people in the Department of Health uh, focused on this topic. And the Department of Health has struggled to fill <laughs> all of its positions. And um, there's no guarantee about what this office would actually do or what mandate it would have. But um, I think increasing the number of people that have some stake in this and are working to address it would be observed by many to be a promising step. I know that the Santa Fe New Mexican recently ran an editorial advocating for 
an AHA fund, uh, Alcohol Harms Alleviation Fund. Do you have a sense of what that might look like or how that funding might be used? Well, the idea of creating a separate fund to really direct resources to alcohol is uh, an interesting one. I think um, the public health people tend to think of um, alcohol as being part of and related to other substance use dependencies. And in many cases, of course, people have a dependence on multiple substances, alcohol being just one of them. And there's um, good reason to think that you shouldn't, you know, silo funds to address one type of substance when people will be just as well benefiting if they're struggling with another. Um, but at the same time, we do have a tendency to focus a lot on, you know, what makes the headlines fentanyl, illegal substances do get a lot more attention in the state and nationwide, even though alcohol kills twice the number of people in New Mexico as all those other substances combined. Right. So I guess I would say the probably proponents of this kind of fund are recognizing that if you want alcohol to get its fair share, it should have uh, an independent fund that is really focused on treatment and prevention. And if uh, they have their way and even direct all the alcohol taxes that are currently collected to such a fund um, by getting the federal government to match some of those resources with Medicaid spending, which is what happens when we spend money on Medicaid in the state, right? The federal government gives us a very favorable match. You could actually turn 50 million or so dollars of alcohol tax revenues into a figure much larger than that um, for treatment and prevention. So um, I think I've heard support for that kind of spending from a wider political spectrum, Representative Jason Harper, uh, who's sort of seen as the Republicans um, tax guru, and maybe he's seen that way by um, legislators across the spectrum. He felt like that was kind of a no brainer when I talked to him as well. Um, although he's skeptical of, of raising the alcohol taxes. We touched on this the last time you were on the podcast, Ted, but are we seeing any efforts currently to reduce alcohol abuse and deaths across the state? Well, during the height of the election season, I was asking the governor's office what they had done to address alcohol use. Uh, they point to some initiatives they are making to increase the number of clinicians that talk with their patients uh, about alcohol use, that screen them and give them a brief intervention to counsel them to drink less. Um, and then they've done a lot of bureaucratic changes, I think, to try and streamline and improve how alcohol treatment is uh, accessible by most New Mexicans who need it. But like I said earlier, the problems of the state with alcohol stretch far beyond people who sort of have a diagnosed disease. Um, a lot of the alcohol-related harms that a population experiences are among people who don't have a, an alcohol use dependency. A, like a diagnosed illness with alcohol. A lot of the harms of injury and violence happen to people who are just drinking too much one night. And any interventions that are just focused on your quote unquote problem drinkers are going to miss a huge, huge share of the uh, problem. And so uh, as far as changing the drinking environment to be safer, um, whether that's through the things that the CDC recommends, like reducing the number of alcohol outlets, 
increasing the price of alcohol, changing alcohol marketing, stronger oversight and enforcement of existing alcohol laws. I've seen no evidence that those things have been done in any strong way or in any strengthened way in recent years. Is there anything you want to add, Ted, that we haven't talked about today? You know, reporting on this issue, you go out into the world looking uh, to explore its problems, but inevitably, at least I end up reflecting a little bit on my own behavior and my own um, habits. And I hope that other people don't just turn aside from an alcohol issue and think that it pertains to somebody else. I think it's really worth reflecting on how this issue affects, you know, not only ourselves, but our families. And to think about whether we owe something, whether we're teetotalers or we just want to think of ourselves as responsible drinkers, you know, whether we owe something to our fellow residents in the state. Um, I come to think that if we live in a state where we want everybody to live a long and healthy life, we do want to have a drinking environment that's safe for everybody, even people who have different proclivities and dependencies. And so I hope that people think empathetically about each other and then go out and look at the evidence and think about what they think um, we should do to achieve that. Thanks again, Ted, for your time today. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporter stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Ted Alcorn for joining us this week. You can find a link to his award-winning original series, Blind Drunk, in the show notes or online at www.lcsun-news.com. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. Thanks to KOB4 in Albuquerque for the extra audio in this week's episode. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me, you can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time. <laughs>